Welcome to the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast, where you will hear transformational stories, positive encouragement, and practical strategies to help you grow your mindset, reach your potential, live your dreams, and experience a purpose-driven, impact-filled life. Here's your host, Alan Blaine. This is Alan Blaine, and I am fired up to interview our special guest today, Adam French. Adam has been pastoring in megachurches for over a decade now. Recently, he founded Recovery Refuge, a Christ-centered and word-centric ministry designed to help those struggling with addictions. Adam is currently speaking across the nation at churches, businesses, and prisons as a Bible communicator while being the executive director of Recovery Refuge. On a personal note, he has been married for 13 years and has three children ages 15, 13, and five years old. He's an avid Bible communicator at youth camps, conferences, and Sunday church services. He's the author of Mandinity, Healing the Wounded Man, a former college athlete and middle school football coach. For fun, he enjoys coaching his son's sports teams, exercising, being on the lake, we have that in common, along with many other things, helping people in recovery, taking walks with his wife, and eating dinner at the table with his family. Adam, welcome to the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway podcast. You ready for this? Alan, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for letting me be a part of it, man. It's just, I've been looking forward to this all week. I have too. Uh, thank you for taking time to come on here and share your story. I have no doubt it's going to encourage a bunch of people and I get to learn more about you. So this will be fun, but I've shared with our audience just a brief intro of who you are and what you're about. But if you would, let's just start off by letting you take us back and bring us up to current date and give us just a little more background on who you are and how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. My life begins is what they would say, the typical American kid, you know, both my parents worked and went to school, loved sports, as normal as normal could be. And my parents always drank and party. We weren't involved with anything related to religion or God of that nature. But as things began to progress, as time went on, I noticed that the parties got to get a little longer and the music was a little bit louder. And my father's alcoholism progressed so bad that he became violent and eventually just walked away from everything. He walked away from his wife, his business that he had built, a very successful construction worker and, and built a construction business. And and then now here I am, I'm 16 years old. It's me and my mom. And my mom was successful as well as an educator. And that was the beginning of the opioid crisis. You know, this is in the late nineties and the early two thousands. And my mom pulled a muscle on her back while she was tilling the garden and her doctor prescribed a prescription pain medication. And so she became highly addicted. So now I'm a 16-year-old kid that we had purchased 80 acres two years earlier. We're looking at building this log cabin house. I'm an athlete. I'm enjoying life too. My father's gone. My mom's an addict. I'm coming home every day and no one's there. And so high school was really about me keeping up the persona of what was supposed to be. So I wore a mask and the world fueled that mask because I was a football player, athlete, dating a cheerleader. And so I had this mask on. I wanted everybody to see this ego that was really sky high. That's where I learned to puff up my ego because what was low was my insecurity and my self-worth. So I hid the struggles and the pain and the woundedness that I had inside with my ego. 
Right. And that led me down a path of destruction where alcohol and drugs became a part of my life. And I began to use people just to get what I want, you know, and life started to lose its luster. You probably have that experience where you know that, man, it's only good for a little while. And I'm sure our listeners can understand that. You know, we think something's going to quench that hole in our heart. We think something's going to satisfy us, but it just doesn't. And all of that led me to the place that I am today. In the midst of all of that, came to know God. I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. And it wasn't like I got God and, oh, man, everything went away. I think people see God as maybe this being that comes and sweeps all of our messes away and puts it in a closet, and then we go forward. Unfortunately, there may be some who try to pretend that's how God is, but God is very different. God is very near. He's a messy God. For me, what it looked like was this. When I came to know God, it was like he took the trash that was in my heart. It was messy, nasty, smelly, stinky. He poured it out on the ground, and we have been going through it piece by piece ever since. And that's kind of how I came to the point that I am now to start the ministry and do what I do. I love it, Adam. I've got so many questions for you. Before I jump back to the first one I wanted to ask, just right there at the end, when you said we've been going through it piece by piece, what do you mean by that, that you and God have been going through all that trash that got dumped out on the ground, figuratively speaking, piece by piece? You know, for me, when I turn and face God, I take my heart and I face the heart of God. I don't get condemnation. I don't get this is what you have done and you need to be better. My conception of church was, and of just having a relationship with God is, it's a God club for good people. <laughs> and so as a young man, I said, I can't be there because I'm not good. Right. <laughs> right. And I know a lot of us can relate, <laughs> right? We're like, I think of all the bad things I've done. But what I learned was that when I turned and I faced God and I put my heart with God, his response was, I love you enough to tell you the truth. Scripture says that he disciplines the ones that he loves. And so as I began to learn who Jesus was and try to follow him like an apprentice, think of like an electrician or a plumber or someone who's learning a skill set. As I began to be an apprentice of Jesus, things in my heart that I thought were true about myself and the world and my perspective, it began to change. And so God would bring up those wounds. God would bring up the things that were off, the lies that I believe. It's amazing, especially for men, how we try to isolate and insulate our lives, especially when it comes to emotional health. And so for me, man, I buried a bunch of stuff that just straight up wasn't true. And that's what I mean by God goes through it piece by piece. Yeah. And because of that, my perspective, my outlook on myself and on people and how I view God has completely changed. I love it. I love it. So is it fair to say that even though you believe you were forgiven of all the junk in an instant, all the baggage and all the mental and emotional and things that you had to deal with to live in real life are the things that you're saying he's kind of taking you through piece by piece and rebuilding and restoring and repairing? Is that fair to say? We can look at it like this. So God is a relational God. If he wasn't, we wouldn't be here together, working together. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's a relational God. There's relationship there. 
And so you're exactly right. God forgives us. He's a loving, caring God. There's no sin that can separate us from his love. That's great. If you're listening, there's nothing that you can do that God, if you ask for forgiveness, that he wouldn't forgive you. But healing comes when we share, when we confess, when we walk through some of our pains with God and with other people. And so the beginning of that healing started with me facing God and saying, hey, I'm going to be honest with you about this. And then the progress and the progression of me learning to heal was being honest with other men that I could trust. Because when I share those struggles that I have with other men, then the healing comes. I love it, Adam. So good. One of the questions as you were sharing kind of your clip notes version of your story, you were an athlete, you were playing sports in high school, you were 16 when your mom got addicted to opioids and, and that whole thing. But I know you played basketball in college. So at what point between 16 and whatever age you started using and drinking? Yeah. So the story is, is I, I went to college. I didn't even complete. After my sophomore year of high school, one thing is nobody in my family ever saw me play a high school sport. It just kind of gives you a picture of where my life was. And the second thing is, is I never finished a season. I would quit. I mean, I had no foundation. I was in survival mode. I was rebellious. I didn't trust adults. I really struggled to complete anything. And so when I was 19 years old, I went to college. I said, let me try this out. And I was more into the frat parties and drinking than I was to go into class. And I just found this place where I thought, man, there's got to be something else to life than this. And I find lots of men have that question. They could be at different ends of the spectrum. Like, man, I've made all the money I could make, or man, I've, I have kids, I have children, like whatever it may be, we reach this place where we're going, there's something else to life than this. And I reached that at 19. And so I had a brilliant idea. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. As I packed everything into a 1989 LTD and I said, I'm going to live out of my car. I'm going to find what I'm missing. And I would watch the sun go down at the, by the ocean. I, I started really looking for, for God and I didn't know it. And eventually I pulled into a church on a Monday morning and the pastor there opened up the Bible. He told me what church was about. It was about Jesus and what he had done for me and how to have a relationship. And that's where things started to take off quickly. And um, through a series of events of just walking in faith and facing God head on and learning what scripture says, I had an opportunity to play basketball and go to college in California based on some film. And I hopped on a flight and flew out, baby. <laughs> you know. Yeah. You were just living in your car at that time, you said? Yeah. I've been living in my car. I went from living in the car to living in Santa Clara, California. That's how God is. I love it. Is that when your life changed when you said you gave your life to Christ? Was that 19 years old then? I lived out of my car for over a year, so I was actually 20 Okay, uh, when I gave my life to Jesus. Okay. And then was the alcohol, drugs, and all the issues between whatever teenage years and up to 20, I imagine, just gone from your life? Or was it a process or a struggle even after that? When I gave my life to Jesus, man, I just took off running. I, I never really paused. It really learn what it meant to be an apprentice, a follower. I just kept saying, all right, I'm going to try to do the next right thing, next right thing. I went out to Bible college and I really began to struggle. Things began to kind of unravel there. I still didn't have a foundation. Really, I didn't realize that I was carrying around all kinds of trauma, all kinds of wounds. And I just never dealt with that. My thing was, 
I'm going to be as good as I can be. I'm going to try to be this phantom Christian that wakes up in the morning, that prays for an hour, that sings hymns, that never thinks a bad thought. And it was all about a list of things that I needed to do to earn God's love. And I didn't understand that Christianity was a done religion, that he came to me. It's because he first loved me that I could love him. And man, I struggled. I left school after about two years, came back, moved back in with a family member that was still using and drinking and also dealing drugs. And scripture says, like a dog returns to his vomit, a fool returns to his folly. Yep. And that's what I did. I went right back. You know, I said, I know, I know there's a God. I know he's real, but I just can't be that good. Uh, it wasn't long after that that I got indicted for trafficking cocaine. I've got some family members that are involved, and I fell right back into that. I started drinking again, and all of that stuff that was there when I was a 16-year-old kid that was waiting just came out. Mm. And I always say this, what we don't talk out constructively, we act out destructively. And so I had not taken any time to talk through that stuff, to read and write, just to get to the core of the root problem of my soul sickness. And man, I began to act that stuff out destructively. And that's where I would say the moment that I woke up in jail, after surrendering to the ministry, going to Bible college, going to California and playing basketball, all those things, I woke up and I said, man, what is going on? We get there when we don't have anything, when God's all we have, then God's all we need. I reached that moment. And that's where I would say is the hinge for my life. It was my cave moment, if you will, yeah. where God said, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you a path to healing. And that path to healing that I began to walk through is the ministry that God gave me now. They say your mess turns into a message. And that's happened for me. 100%. We have that in common as well. And I love that. So that was around age 22 then? No, I was 25. I 25. was 25. So I went to school couple years, I came back and I lived wild yep. and heard a lot of people made a lot of mistakes. And the whole time I knew God and he was there, but I just didn't know how to change. I didn't know what I needed to face in me. And when I sat in that jail cell, when I sat down, I say I, I didn't get arrested. I got rescued. I'm thankful for the police officer that arrested me. I'm thankful for the people that let me sit there because when I sat there, there was no running from me. I had to face it. I had just a little bit. It only takes one moment to change. And I had just a little bit of willingness to change. And boy, did God take that and run with it. That's awesome, Adam. So tell me then what came first after that? Was it the recovery refuge ministry that you started? And I want you to be able to tell our listeners about that. Or was it the Mandinity book? Tell us the rest of the story, the good news after age 25. Yeah. So at 25 is when I started to face myself. And I had a man, his name was Peter. He's an awesome guy. He was at the Salvation Army Rehabilitation Center on North First Street in Nashville. So they let me furlough out of jail from actually the state of Kentucky to come to Nashville, which is unheard of. That was a miracle anyways. And I started to meet with him. We would sit down one-on-one -on -one once a week. And he had some books and some readings and there was questions. And it, what it was, was just kind of picking at my heart. And he was the first man that I was willing to be honest with. See, I didn't trust men, Alan. My father was violent. He left me. I had a real hard time opening up to other men, but I trusted him. 
and he was kind, he was honest, he was straightforward. And he started to walk me through a lot of the pain in my heart. And from there, I went to celebrate recovery. I went to AA meetings. I started attending church all the time. I just started filling my life with everything that was conducive to spiritual growth. And before I know it, the church that I was attending said, hey, would you want to come on staff? And I was like, what do you mean staff? <laughs> you know. And uh, it's a funny story. They called me on a Sunday morning and said, hey, can you come in? I, I woke my wife up. I said, listen, honey, my background check must have came. They're going to tell me I can't come to church here anymore. That's what <laughs> I told her. And they were calling me in to hire me. And that's a picture of God. He's not looking at the wrongs that we've done and saying, I caught you. He's saying, come to me. I will give you rest. Come to me right where you are. Don't try to clean up your life. Don't try to fix anything. Come to me now, and I am the hope that will restore you. So that's when everything took off. I threw myself into ministry, started teaching, went to Bible college, got a degree in counseling, 4.0, spoke at graduation, like God's doing all these things. And we did 10 years of ministry, as we talked about in the beginning, but there was still kind of a gnawing at my heart. And here's how it went. I, I would not have planned this. I, I wish God would choose a different way to get our attention. But as I mentioned before, it's these difficult moments in our lives, the valleys, the caves, the struggles, which I love about your podcast, these life hard moments is what drives our success. That's why we succeed, right? And so I'm 35 years old, 10 years in ministry, degrees, house, home, kids, the jail cells way in the past, but I started having anxiety for the first time in my life. I'm sitting on the couch Christmas Eve, man, and I started having these warm sensations. I told my wife, I said, man, maybe I drank too many Diet Cokes, you know? I'm like, I had no idea. And that was another moment I sat down with a man in counseling, he said, Adam, you know what this sounds like? I'm like, what? Tell me. Let's fix it. Give me a pill. Give me I'll exercise. What I got to do? He said, it sounds like anxiety. And I said, well, how do we fix it? He said, it's going to take some time. We're going to have to walk slower and slower and journey through. And that's when I realized that I hadn't dealt with all the trauma in my heart. And I call that experience my soul care journey. I stepped away from the ministry. I took two years. And that's where the book, Mandinity, came from, was out of that. When I got finished, and it's always a journey. I'm not completely healed or I'll never be perfect. Right. Salvation doesn't mean sinless. But there was a direction of my life that was conducive to healing. I said, man, what if I could create a resource for any man, any man at any stage of life? Because we all have wounds, whether we grew up with both our parents and Christian environment or we didn't, because nobody's perfect. We're all raised by imperfect people. Right. So we're going to have struggles and wounds. And so that's where the resource came from now. And I developed it there and people have been using it in prisons and jails and treatment centers and men's groups and men's conferences. I'll go and speak and it's designed for men to go through it together. And you can get it on any kind of Amazon, any resource out there, you can get it, but it's designed for men to read through it together. You can do it on your own, but I encourage you to share the answers to the questions. So it's kind of a, elementary style workbook, if you will, a little bit of my story, a little bit of theology and psychology and, and understanding of how we get there. And then it's a time for you just to write and reflect and, and walk through. And so all of that was the beginning of Mandinity. 
I don't know. I can go on into Recovery Refuge if you want, but yeah, well, yeah, I, I would like to hear that too. But so the book, I haven't read it yet. I can't wait to read it, but it's part traditional book, if you will, and part workbook almost. Is that a fair way to say it? It is. I wanted to minimize the amount of reading for men because yeah. we're busy. We don't like to read. Not, I won't say that for everybody. Yeah. Majority don't like to read. We don't have the space to read. And so what it is, is it's my story, which a lot of times are some crazy difficult moments. So it's a little bit of excitement there. And then theology, the psychology, and kind of helping you walk through the stuff. And then there's just four or five questions at the end of each chapter. The book is right around 200 pages. And so you've really about 150 pages of reading when you factor in all the writing. And and I just, like I say, I wanted to give this pathway where it's like a slow walk that's conducive to emotional and spiritual healing. And I can't tell you how many men and women have reached out to me and said, thank you. My husband has changed because my problem was one of the things that came up that led me to this was I had a real hard time connecting emotionally with my wife. I knew what I wanted from her. And I knew that I would always say, well, I'm doing this. What's your problem? And she's like, I'm not talking about the things that you're doing. I'm talking about, I want you to connect with me. I want you to, I'm like, what are you speaking Spanish here? (laughs) Like, I'm right here. How can we not connect? And it was because there was such a disassociation. It was like, I was walking around with my head cut off my body because I was detached emotionally. And so the book helps us restore that. And it has done wonders in my life in so many ways when it comes to connectivity. So what you're describing is what I think so many marriages need. I think so many men and women for that most part can feel the same way as your wife felt. And as you felt the frustration of not knowing what I need to do to connect better. So what an awesome thing and awesome resource to be able to help heal the man internally to help bring together the marriage. Oh man, that's exciting. It gets me excited just thinking about that. So you said that book right there was before the ministry. And so it was during your two year, I'll say sabbatical from the profession of ministry, even though, you know, I'm sure you'd agree with me. Ministry is every day, all the time, no matter what our occupation is, but from the occupation of paid ministry or whatever, you wrote that book. And now it's gone in quite a few places, right? You said it's in prisons, a few different prisons. It's in prisons all across the nation. It's in Costa Rica and prisons there. It's in treatment centers. A lot of men's group use them. So it's all over the United States of America. You can find it in any Amazon, any place where they sell books, it'll be there, especially online. So it's just an incredible resource that I'm so thankful that God allowed us to put together. And there's about 4,000 men that go through it roughly or so a month inside of prison for free. So I was able to create a digital English and Spanish resource that is inside prison. So I'm real grateful and proud to be able to do that. That's awesome, Adam. And is it focused, obviously, for men? Sounds like it's for men and for men in addiction and recovery of whatever the addiction is, or is it outside the scope of addictions? The book's not just for alcohol and drugs. It's for every man. And I really believe, in my opinion, that men... We are so focused on performance and we're so focused on what we do on the outside. We measure our success by how much good that we've done. And we try to figure out a way to do more good instead of figuring out a way to find what's happening inside. And we reach this point, this ceiling. Emotionally, we reach this point, a ceiling professionally. Again, we're grabbing outside when the truth is, The next step for you to be successful in business, the 
bursting through that ceiling, bursting through that wall you've hit in your marriage and your professional life and your spiritual life is inside of you. And so I just wanted to create a resource where you could slowly walk through that. It's great stuff. Tell me how then you got into starting the Recovery Refuge Ministry and how that all transpired. Yeah. So I thought my next step was, man, mega church pastor. I've been preaching like that was kind of the next thing or just pastoring a church, a small little church. It didn't matter to me. I thought that's my next step. You know, that's what I've been doing for 10 years and learning and growing. But the whole time I was doing that, I was always working with men. I was going to meetings in the recovery world, learning about that. It was almost like a secret ministry, which is something that I love to do. It was good for me. It helped me stay on the right path. And as I went through this journey, when I came back into Nashville, Tennessee, actually, I moved back to Nashville, I'll pull in, I'll never forget this, pull in with a U-Haul. I got a call as soon as I came in, a man called me. He said, Adam, my life is falling apart. Now, this guy is very successful in business. Wife was a part of the worship group at a church in town, just things going well. And I said, what's going on? And he told me, he said, I've been using, I've been hiding it. And that journey with him over the next year was devastating because I could not find a place that he could be successful at. Uh, just last year, he overdosed 19 times. He's in jail right now, currently. And I began to hear all these stories. In just our county alone, every 36 hours, someone overdoses and dies. And so when we started to see all this stuff and the need for a place that was local, I'm not looking to do something globally, and I'm not going to take a bunch of insurance. I'm not looking for number of clients served. That won't be how I measure success. But we said, man, what if we could create a refuge, a sanctuary where men could come and stay for a year, a year-long program where men could come and stay and the trajectory of their life changes forever. And that's what we want to do. We want to slow walk with them through sobriety, through life change, and that's how the vision for Recovery Refuge came. And honestly, Alan, I thought, man, this is a five-year plan and God began to provide. And so now we're in the stages where we've just got land. In 2024, we'll start our building campaign. You can find out more about that at recoveryrefuge.care. Um, that's the website, recoveryrefuge.care. If you want to be a part, want to join the cause that we have. But we're in the stages now of planning a capital building campaign to build a building. So we're hoping early 2025, we'll have our first group of men that will come and live and stay. I love it. And I love that you shared that statistic. What was it? Every 36 hours in our county alone. And this is a very nice county. We're the third wealthiest county in the state of Tennessee. Right. So addiction knows no race or economic status or anything like that. It just comes out of nowhere. And so we thought, man, let's create a place where people can come and grow and heal and come back in the community. And instead of being takers, they can be givers. I love it. Would you say every 36 hours, an overdose or a, a fatal a death? Yeah. They die every 36 yeah. hours. So it, just to kind of people, you may be listening from all across the country to put it in perspective. So in Nashville, a metropolitan city, we have on average 14 overdose deaths just from fentanyl. So one drug every week, 14 people die. So let that sit in. Let's say that person's name is Adam. They have a father. They have a mother. These are families that are losing people every single day across our country. And so the need is there and we just want to step up and meet that. I love it, Adam. 
Well, you're having a ton of success. You know, you've been sharing your story and ministering to people on big stages. I know I got to hear you on a big stage not that long ago and delivering a phenomenal message. And that's why I reached out to you. I'm like, oh, man, I got to get this guy on my podcast. <laughs> I got to get him in my life, first of all, because these are the kind of people I want to know and I want to be close with. And I know iron sharpens iron and I need all the iron I can get. So thank you for coming on here. But you're having a lot of success. Obviously, your book's having success. Your ministry is in its early stages, but it's well on its way to no doubt doing amazing things. What would you say has been one of the keys to your success? I think that's a great question. And I always think of it like this, the cornerstone. So in business and wherever you may be, you always say, we got all these problems and people think about how can we fix them one by one. My mind always goes to if there's five or six struggles or things in our life, what is the one thing that I could change that could kind of touch them all? And so for me, I've built my life around this cornerstone. And that cornerstone is it's a couple of things. One is my quiet time alone with God. It's a silent time that I sit. I'm in quiet. It's a time where I sit. I think I'm quiet. The Bible says, be still and know that I'm God. It's a time for me to remind myself I'm not God <laughs> and I don't need to be. And my life is built around that quiet moment. The other thing is I believe that every man should have one person in their life that knows everything about them. That's not healthy for everybody to know everything about you. And the truth is, everybody doesn't have your best interest in mind so that you don't need to tell them. Right. But God has somebody for you to be vulnerable with that you could call. I could go and preach on a Sunday morning and then Sunday night, something could fall apart and I could call this guy and just be livid and be the most far from God. And he would love me. He would listen and he would tell me the truth. Every man needs that somebody outside of your bubble so that you can stay the real you and you can continue to grow and become that all those things that life's hard challenges did so that you can succeed anyway. The way that you do that is to be the person that God's called you to be. Oftentimes, these struggles, these wounds, these difficulties lead us to put those masks on. So we have so many men running around trying to be something they're not. And the truth is, if you really got down with it, they don't even know who they are. Right. So for me, the biggest thing is trying to stay true to myself, to thy own self be true. Those are the two cornerstones in my life. There's a lot more that I could say, but those are the two cornerstones that I say try to keep me being the person that I know God's called me to be. That is so good, Adam. And I'm so glad you shared both of those. I guess I wouldn't know, but what I think from all the relationships I have and all the men I've met and groups I've been in, I would guess it's not even probably 1% of the men out there have a man that they have that relationship with that you just described, where they right. could be 100% honest and vulnerable. So, so powerful. And then I love that, the quiet time. What do you say to somebody that says, hey, every time I sit down to be still and listen, my head's so full of everything else I need to be doing and thoughts are popping in my head at 90 miles an hour, I have trouble. But what do you say that, that with that challenge? What advice would you give? Yeah, I think there's two tools to use for that. One is I have a really close pastor friend that does this. Before he does that, he takes a sheet of paper because he does this at his desk. He says, I just take a piece of paper and I just write whatever comes in my mind and my heart. If it takes 10 minutes, 20 minutes, I just write and I just get everything out of my head. I just write, write, write. So I can't write anymore. And then I have my quiet time. Yeah. And that may be for you. Another one is 
It's okay to walk. I have a hard time sitting as well. I can't do that for a long time. But there's a lot of study, a lot of science out there that has proven that some of the most intimate moments we can have is while we're moving and talking. So even taking a walk and having a phone conversation with someone is very, very helpful. I would suggest those two things. Hey, listen, get a piece of paper. I'm not going to use the word journal because some men turn and run, but get a piece of paper and just throw up on that paper, get it all out of your head. See if that works. If that doesn't, man, take a walk. And something about that movement, and while you're moving, your mind can slow down. Yeah. And that can be your quiet silence as you're walking. There's nothing wrong with it. And I know that that's been helpful for a lot of men who have that same struggle. This is some practical, real world, rubber meets the road advice that you're dropping. And I really, really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners do too. I want to go back to the challenges. You know, you talked about growing up with the dad that left. Do you have any relationship, by the way, side note, do you have any relationship with your dad today? Yeah. So my father actually, he died. He drank himself to death. He died of cirrhosis of the liver. Okay. But because of all the things that I had dealt with in my life, me and my dad were at complete peace with each other. So one of the things that I had determined, the Mandini talks about this, was I wanted to make amends. And that was a tough one for me because my dad had harmed me so much. But there were some things that I had done to him. And I'll never forget, I sat, my dad was drinking a mixed drink, smoking a cigarette on his porch. And I told him that I was sorry for the things that I had done. I was rebellious as a teen. I went through all these things that we had struggled with and his mouth dropped because this is a guy that had been violent. We had fought, absent father, all this stuff. But when I finished that conversation, I was as light as a feather. And we were as close as he would allow us to be. And when he died, I preached his funeral. I had nothing but peace in my heart. So again, being able to face my stuff and clean my side of the street allowed me to face him with all the love that I was capable of giving. And so that relationship was restored. Wow, that is awesome. What about your mother? Yeah, so my mom, crazy story is when I started preaching in the jail, I partnered and we started a little jail ministry there in the town that I got saved. And my mom, I started praying for her. This is a power of prayer, man. I started praying for a year for my mother and begging God and begging God. And many people were praying and my mom gets arrested. And I said, thanks, God. Like, thanks for answering my prayers, right? I was, I was upset. I was upset for a while. I was like, God, you didn't hear me. My mom winds up going to the jail ministry that I had helped start, was a part of, and she gives her life to Christ. I carried her out of the jail on my shoulder. She was kicking and screaming, took her to Teen Challenge, and she went to that recovery place. And my mom's been sober, went back to school, got her doctorate in education. She's been all over the world sharing the good news. She texted me last night before I went to speak at a youth conference and said, hey, man, I'm excited for you, praying for you. Let me know how it goes. So that relationship has been completely restored. She's active in church, fully involved, and she's a super nanny. She's always, always around. So, Wow, Adam, I love it, man. That is awesome. We have another thing in common. Our families have something in common. So our only son of six children, five girls, one boy at 16, got caught up in the wrong crowd and started doing the wrong things. And the drug use got so bad that at 18, we asked him to leave. And that was just a year ago, actually a year ago next month. And he left with a car that he'd paid $5,000 for and 
a wallet and a suitcase and that was it, maybe $500 in the bank. And he found himself about a week or two later living in a rest stop. He'd sold his car for 500 bucks, threw his wallet in the trash because who needs ID or wallet or any of that, I guess, at that point when his brain was frying. And long story short, gets picked up by the cops who take him to the hospital. Anyway, he ends up living on the streets of Tampa for a few nights and realized that's no place to be living for an 18-year-old guy. The same verse you quoted a minute ago about as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. A homeless dude shared with him on the streets in a park where he just slept the night before on a park bench or kid slide or something. This guy shares this verse with our son, Braden, and Braden, he's like, why wouldn't you just stay in your home where you have a bed to sleep in and give up the drugs? Like, yeah. well, why not? You know, what are you, what are you thinking? <laughs> and uh, that is the verse that God used to get to Braden's heart to call us and say, you send me anywhere you want to send me, I'll go. We went and got him, took him to Adult and Teen Challenge last October. A week into the program, he gave his life to Christ. Come on. And now he's however many months, eight, nine months in, a couple months away from graduating and rock solid in every way. Let's go. So yeah, it's just been uh, awesome. So I'm a big fan of Adult and Teen Challenge now after this experience. And apparently your mother is too. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're doing very similar things to them. Our vision is local. So when someone comes forward anywhere in our area from any church or from any community, we'll be here because I realize one of the biggest challenges is when you leave. Like I could lock you away and keep you away from a Diet Coke, but when you get out, you're going to have to drive by all the gas stations. And so right. there's such a strong recovery community here in this area with meetings and churches that are very open to it. Many of our pastors have recovery stories. So that's why we want to stay local is, hey, we'll take guys that are locally here. So when they get out, we're still here. I'm still in the community. I'm still down the road where you can call or connect. So what has been the biggest challenge at this point in your life? I mean, you've had abandonment issues. Obviously, you've had your own addiction issues, your parents' addictions, you know, your father's death. I'm sure there's other things. But what would you say has been the biggest challenge to date that you faced? You know, the biggest challenge for me is I'm a quick learner. I'm not a quick liver. (laughs) So I learn things very, very fast. I'm an overachiever. You set a goal and I'm going to go get it, right? I'm just driven, man. I'm driven. When I want something, I'm going after it, you know? And the challenge for me is to slow down and not so focus about learning things to help me go faster or learning things to help me achieve faster. What I want to do is be able to live things in the moment slowly so they will last longer. I want lasting success. I want lasting relationships. I want lasting impact. I don't want something quick. I don't want to be able to go back. Oh, Adam did this, 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 this. That's great. I want people to say, man, I know that guy well. And when he's talking to me, there can be a thousand people in the room and he's looking me right in the eyes. I want to live in the moment. So the difference between learning and living for me is probably the most difficult thing. I don't want to just learn stuff and achieve stuff because that goes away. I want to live stuff, be true to myself and have a lasting impact that never goes away. Because what we invest in people in their life, 
they're going to share with other people in the life and the ripple effect with that never goes away. Now, if I were to ask any listeners right now, could you tell me who your great, great grandfather's first name or your great, great grandmother's first name? Could you do that, Alan? Not if you do a couple of greats now. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking two, we'll just say three generations away, maybe four. No one listening right now could say the first and last name of anybody. They, they wouldn't be able to do it. Right. But the name of Jesus lives on from generation to generation and generation. Right. And the principles of his teachings live on from generation to generation to generation. So I want to be able to impact people's lives in such a way that that success continues on way after I'm gone. I love it. That's my biggest struggle, you know, fighting against that rub right there. The rub of being so driven, you want to run fast, which may be a good thing. It may not be a good thing. And balancing that with making sure you're taking time to go slow enough to be doing things that have eternal value and are going to last. That's so. Yeah. And you know, and I think accumulation, we have success. Blessings are great. More things are okay. But if it's constantly more, 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 then I'm missing a point. Right. Deep connections take time. And that's with people. And that's with things like things that I do. I want to be deeply invested. I'm the type guy that could do a whole bunch of things really fast and it may bring success to me, but I'm not deeply invested in that. When I go there, I start to break up into pieces and I just start to become something that is not impactful. And so I want to stay true to myself and do a few things really, really well that I'm truly, truly investing in. Because at the end of the day, there's one thing that we can't get more of, and that's time. Yeah. I'm going to ask you three questions in one, Adam, if that's fair, okay? Sure. Your answer may answer two of the three or three of the three, but what would you say to somebody who is listening to this episode right now, wherever they are, and they're struggling in addiction? It's addiction of substance abuse of some sort. And if different, what would you say to the family that's in that same situation? And the third one, I'm throwing three all at the same, but what advice would you love to give your younger self? So some of these may overlap. It may not be three separate answers. It's the only reason I'm doing it all at once. I never have done this before, but advice to someone struggling, advice with a family member struggling, and what would you love to tell your younger self, maybe even before you were struggling as hard as you were? I'll answer the first and the last together because they're the same. The first thing would be if you're listening right now and you're addicted to anything, alcohol, drug, porn, work, workaholism, if your marriage is falling apart, any kind of struggle you have, the first thing I would say is to ask for help. It's okay to not be okay. That is the biggest hurdle that we have is to go ask for help. Drop the pie, drop the ego. Listen, I know somebody that's 42 years old when they got sober, they've been sober 18 years. Like it's never too late and it's never too early. I was 25 and I wish I'd have got sober when I was 15. Don't wait right now. Ask for help. Go to your local church. Go to your local treatment center. Find anybody you can say, I need help. If you have to ask a police officer, hey, I'm on the street right now. Somehow I got some phone. I'm listening to this podcast. I'm addicted. Ask for help. People will help you. They're willing. If I go back to that 15-year-old boy, what I would tell him is say, Adam, ask for help. I was so afraid. I mean, I was so scared to tell somebody what was really happening inside. I just wanted to show that mask 
And that ego, if I just would have told somebody, my dad left, my mom's on drugs, I need help. I didn't tell anybody that until I was 25 years old. I allowed so much pain for 10 years to happen because I simply wouldn't say I need help. And if you're in the position where someone that you love is struggling, I'm going to tell you some advice that is not easy. It's very easy to learn, very easy to say, very hard to live. And here's that advice. The best thing you can do is to be honest. When it comes to our family, I did this with a family member. I was really apathetic and complacent. I just kind of let them flow in and out of my life. And when I saw them, you know, I wasn't condemning. I just didn't bring it up. Some people, you know, shun them. So there's all these different ways. But what really helped and what I'm learning to practice now is to tell them the truth, no matter what the cost may be, the cost of our relationship. We have enablers out there right now. You're listening and you're letting that person live and use and leech off you because you're not willing to go to them and say, hey, I'm taking a look at your life the last year and here's what's happened. Here's what you're destroying. Here's where you're headed. You can't do this anymore. Here's the truth. Or you're the person who just said, I'm not going to even deal with you. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to be with you. You owe them the right to go to them and say, let me tell you the reason why I don't like to be around you because of your alcoholism, because of your using. Tell them the truth. If we believe that the truth is what sets us free, then who are we to tell people a lie? Who are we to withhold the truth because of their feelings or whatever reason it may be? Do not believe the lie that withholding truth is helping anyone because it never does. So good, Adam. So good. Thank you for sharing that your first piece of advice about asking for help. It jives perfectly with, I think maybe three weeks ago, we had Victoria Robinson on here who at 22 had an abortion. And she talked about how she went 10 years from 22 to 32, if I remember correctly, before she finally asked for help to deal with the trauma and the pain and the everything that had been bottled up for 10 years and what a difference that made in her life. So I just think you've, you've just gave some incredible advice and I know it'll help a ton of people. So thank you. As we start to wind this down, just some kind of rapid fire questions. I love to ask all our guests, 30 second type quick sure. response if we could, but is there a favorite success quote that you might like to share with our audience? A favorite success quote. Well, I can look on right here on my favorite movie, get busy living or get busy dying. You know, Hey, don't wait till tomorrow. Today is the day. Face whatever you have right now. One of my first mentors says, Adam, if you're speaking and a baby starts crying, you say, oh, that baby's crying. He said, just address the issue. Just face it. Just live right in the moment. We have too many people that are cowering away or putting things off. I say, get busy living because we are (laughs) headed towards death. That's one thing certain for all of us. So um, that's from Shawshank Redemption, by the way, one of my favorite movies. So that's my quote. I love it. That's a great one. What is one habit that has helped you? live a successful life, Adam? Yeah, I think honesty. The most important thing in my life today is honest. There's such a tendency to hide truth, to shy away from what's real, and we don't need to do it. Pick up that phone, pick up that coffee, and tell people the truth. Look them in the eyes and tell them the truth. The truth is what sets us free. That's the most important thing for me. 
So good. I love it. What's one of the best pieces of advice that you've ever received? Man, you know, with my father leaving when I was young, I've had the privilege of so many men speaking into my life. And I'm grateful for that. God just brings men into my life. So there's a lot of advice that I've been given. I think for me, the greatest piece of advice was this man by the name of Ralph Cook told me, he said, Adam, be good to yourself. And I'm so hard on myself. I mean, if we went back and played the tape of anybody who's listening the last week or the last year, I bet we could go through with a highlight of all. I mean, it would far outweigh the negatives and the positives. And I tell people all the time, be good to yourself. Love yourself. Treat yourself with that ice cream. Treat yourself with that favorite TV show. Like, take time to be good to you. I love it. Is there a book that you'd recommend? We've obviously talked a lot about your book on this show, which sounds phenomenal. And again, I can't wait to read it. But is there a book that you would possibly recommend for the Life's Hard Succeed Anyway audience? Yeah, um, there's a book called Emotional Healthy Spirituality. It's a really good book. That would be for everybody. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Peter Scazzario is a book I would recommend for everybody listening. For the men, I would recommend Wild at Heart which was one of my favorite books. And it just helps men realize our tendencies and it helps us embrace some of these urges that people who maybe don't believe in a God design that doesn't have a biblical worldview tries to stifle and push down. And I just feel like Wild at Heart helps us live out to that full potential. Those would be the two that I would really recommend. Love it. This next question is one of my favorites that I want to ask you, and I've been asking every guest for the last, I don't know how many months now, but what is Adam French's definition of success? <laughs> Man, that's a great question. I probably sound like, you know, just a repeat button here, like I'm just repeating stuff. But for me, success looks like when I look in the mirror and I see the man in the mirror and I know who he is. I know what I'm thinking. I know what's truly going on in my heart. And then when I look at my wife, when I look at you, Alan, when I look at other people that I'm just meeting, that's the same person. That's the same person I'm trying to show you. That's the same person I'm trying to get you to know. There's no mask. There's nothing hidden. I'm not trying to be anything else. Yeah. Success is when I can look the world in the eyes, we look everybody in the eyes and say, this is who I am. This is who I want to be. And I want to be that person all the time. I love it. No pretense, no mask, as you said, no hidden secrets, no agenda, no ego. Yeah. You know, just, you know, my, and I have to fight that. My ego, you know, wants to elevate myself or wants to over exaggerate all these things our ego does. And it's like, no, 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 no. Just be me. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love it. When you think about the future, Adam, what is exciting you? I, I don't want to say what's exciting you most, because that's not fair. Put you on the spot like that. And it may not be one thing, but what's something that just excites you when you think about the future currently? i tell you what is the most exciting for me about the future is this. You're probably going to be like, dude, this is the worst answer ever. Um, <laughs> it's uncertainty. Yeah. For so long in my life, I just had to know. I had to be certain. I wanted to be on the results committee. This is the first season of my life where I can say, I have no idea what the future holds. I don't even know how the sport's going to come for the ministry that I'm doing. I don't, 
I don't know how that's going to turn out. I don't know. I don't know when the next person's going to call and ask me to speak. I didn't know I was going to be speaking last night until two weeks earlier. Uncertainty is the most exciting thing for me because I'm trying to take things out of my hands and put them into God's hands. Do I plan? Do I have a budget? Do I have a vision? Do we have a plan for 2020? Yes. <laughs> I'm planning, right? That's not yeah. what I'm saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. What I'm saying is I'm living my life with open hands and I'm saying, God, wherever you want to take me, wherever you want this thing to go, I'm okay with that. I want to leave room for God, Alan. We don't leave room for God. We fill our lives up with so many things that God can't work. Like, God, why won't you bless me? Bless me. But I can't bless you. You're you're seven days a week. You've got 12 hours of your day and then you got to sleep and eat. I have no room to do anything because you're filling it up. I'm excited about the uncertainty about, man, I got room for God. What's he going to do? Yeah, I love it. I love how you said you're making plans, but you're leaving it up to God to direct and bless and steer those plans however he sees fit. And like I said, make plans, but leave room for God. Make plans to rest. Make plans to have time of vision and dream and thinking. Make a plan to where you can say, all right, here's some space, God take out what you want, that sort of thing. So, yeah, so good. So good. Hey, what is the best way for our listeners to connect with you and follow along on your journey, Adam? The easiest way, all my social media handles are the Adam French. So it's just T-H-E in front of A-D-A-M-F-R-E-N-C-H, just the Adam French, Facebook, Instagram, all the social medias. And then if you want to know more about the ministry, you can go to Recovery Refuge dot care so recovery refuge is one word dot care just type that into your url or any kind of search engine and that'll pop up and you can message me there on social media you can message me on our website and that's the easiest way to get connected with me perfect and for all of our listeners we'll have those links down in the show notes as well as the website and we'll include a link to the Mandemity book as well if anybody wants to grab a copy of that and check that out. What's the best way, Amazon? Yeah, Amazon's probably the quickest delivery, easiest way. But some people, if you have somebody that's incarcerated, Barnes and Nobles will be the easiest way to send the book to somebody that is incarcerated or maybe they're in a treatment center. They prefer uh, like a Barnes and Nobles type, just the way they send it, the packaging and stuff and, and mainly the delivery. Got it. Good to know. Well, Adam, it has been awesome. Thank you so much. I'm going to give you the last word. If you have any closing comment, you might want to share with our listeners. I think the last word is that you're not defined by your mistakes. You're not defined by your struggles, right? It doesn't define you. Nobody's going to label you because of that. But out of that is what births a purpose for your future. So a lot of times we try to shun and hide away from our struggles when in reality, the healing that comes from the struggle that we went through is our greatest success. So don't try to hide the things that you struggle with because out of that will become your deepest relationships, your deepest successes. So I just say, listen, be who you are and don't be afraid to show it, the good and the bad. So good. I appreciate you, Adam. Thank you so much for taking time to come on here and share your story, your wisdom, your experiences, and your vulnerability with our audience. Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me. Honored to be here. If you love this podcast, grab some of Alan's free resources on his website at alanblain.com, spelled A-L-L-A-N-B-L-A-I-N.com. You can also find links to Alan's Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok there in his contact page. 
Lastly, if you can leave a five-star review for us on your favorite podcast app, that will get these messages out to more people and it will really mean the world to us. Thanks in advance and make it a great day.